this morning we're going to wrap up this 12-part series on the life of Peter that, that I have been doing for a while. But I, I hope you believe me, we could go a whole lot longer than 12 sermons. Um, for instance, we could, um, we could look at the two books that Peter wrote that are included in the New Testament. We could look at 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Oh, that'd take another 15, 20 weeks, just that. But in addition to that, uh, in the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are dominated by Peter. Peter is the, is the star of the show in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. He's all over it. Uh, for instance, um, in Acts chapter 1, he presides at the meeting where Judas, who has hanged himself, is replaced. In Acts chapter 2, it's Peter that preaches the first sermon after Pentecost. In Acts chapter 3, it's Peter that uh, performs the first miracle. In Acts chapter 5, it's Peter that handles this very ugly situation with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that? When they lied to the Holy Spirit and they both cost them their lives. And then later on in Acts chapter 5, it's Peter's shadow that people long to have fall on them. Peter is, is at the center of all that is happening in these first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. We could add all those sermons to that too. Um, there is one more occasion where Peter appears in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, but Acts 12 effectively marks the end of Peter. He exits um, pretty much at the end, uh, before the end of Acts chapter 12, and uh, you, ne- you never hear much about him. In fact, there's this one brief enigmatic, understated sentence in Acts chapter 12, verse 17, and it says this about him. It says, then he departed and went to another place. And that's it. That's it for Peter. He departed and he went to another place. And he kind of disappears from from the focus of this ongoing narrative of the expansion of the kingdom of God. Peter sails off into the sunset with just a, he departed. And he went to another place. Now, before that, before Acts chapter 12, 17, there is one more event that I thought it would, I thought it would benefit us if we took a look at. Because it's, it's the event where the gospel is about to explode to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the, the primary player, the linchpin in the whole event is Peter. He's the main player in this thing, which is cataclysmic in terms of what's taking place in redemptive history. So, it is found in Acts chapter 10. It's a long story. I, I, um, I wrestled this week about how much of it to read. And so, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I think you'll get the, the gist of the story in the first 33 verses. But that's really longer than I want to read, but that's uh, that's best I can do. So you open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 10. And let me read you of this last story, pretty much the last story about Peter, that is has so much influence, and, and I'll try to explain that later. You follow as I read, <coughs> pardon me, in uh, beginning in Acts chapter 10 at verse 1. 
At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa. And bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And called out to ask where Simon, who was called Peter, was, was, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them into in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been answered and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. 
Guys, this is quite a story. <laughs> um, it contains two visions, one to Cornelius, the other to um, Peter, of course. Uh, in Peter's vision, to his amazement and disgust, this sheet falls down and on the sheet uh, is a bunch of unclean animals, which he had spent the majority of his life avoiding because of, you know, ceremonial laws, ritual purity, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then what is this business about him staying in the home of a tanner in Joppa? Guys, um, you know what a tanner is? A tanner is an occupation that was, was really frowned upon in Judaism. A tanner was one who dealt with the, um, with the curing of skins, animal skins, which meant that a tanner was constantly in contact with dead carcasses and blood, which meant that the tanner was perpetually, ceremonially unclean. There was such a stench that arose from the tanning process that it was a city ordinance that if you were a tanner, you had to build your house 50 cubits outside the city, city limits. If your daughter was engaged to a tanner and she didn't know he was a tanner when she got engaged to him, Jewish law allowed her to annul her engagement because no one would want to would want to live or want to be married to a tanner. Well, what's this business about Peter staying with a tanner? It's real interesting that uh, chapter nine closes with and he stayed in Joppa uh, some days with Simon. It, that, that that introduces us. To this cataclysmic event that's taking place in chapter 10. This event was so important to the, to the author of this book, Luke, that he told it twice. He told it in Acts 10. He told, he tells it again in Acts 11. Now, now guys, um, for the, this story basically is about the first time in the history of redemption where the barrier, the wall between Jews and Gentiles is about to come down. This, this whole idea that Gentiles get to be included in the household of faith, when up to this point, um, Christianity had pretty much been a sect within Jerusalem, within Judaism, and most people wanted it to stay that way. But this thing is about to blow the doors off of all of the boundaries, of all of the limitations of the advance of the gospel. Because now, after this event, the gospel is about to go to Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I, as Gentile Christians, can trace our roots back to the living room of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. This is our story right here. As Gentiles, this is our point of origin right here in this story, guys. This is quite a story. Now, gang, we could we could go on and on about the story, and I hope that you'll see that he comes and preaches the gospel, and the the Holy Spirit descends, and the whole room is uh, this whole room of Gentiles is converted. That's what I didn't read you, but I have to confess. The thing that really draws me to this text is verse 14. <laughs> Where Peter is in this vision, and Jesus shows him this sheet of um, unclean animals. And Peter says, oh, and he says, I mean, Jesus says, arise, kill and eat. 
And Peter says in verse 14, not so, Lord. <laughs> now, guys, I know some of your translations say, not, not, by no means. But the best translation is, not so, Lord. Not so. I, I have pointed out this verse to you before. Um, because it contains an internal contradiction. I mean, if you're, if you're going to say not so, you ought not say Lord. If you're going to say Lord, you ought not say not so. I mean, surely if you're going to say not so to somebody, it ought not be to the Lord. <laughs> Don't you agree? Um, but you know, guys, I think one of the reasons that I'm attracted to that statement is because in a lot of ways I'm like Peter. I tend to say things... Like Peter, I tend to misspeak and to say things that I wish I hadn't said. You know, I I could tell you of dozens, (laughs) trust me, I could tell you of dozens of things, um, you know, like saying to the lady in the hall one day about, you know, when did you have your baby and, you know, I'm not pregnant and nor have I been pregnant, you know, just, just. Things that I wish I could. I, I won't bore you with all the details. Although, guys, it does it does remind me of something that I, I just want to address real quickly. Um, could I correct something that I said to you last week? Actually, you probably never heard it. I don't think you did because my wife is the only one who heard it. And, and she said I didn't say it in the first hour, but I said it in the second hour. Okay, so you didn't even hear this. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct it anyway, just in case... Um, you, I'm sure you don't remember last week's sermon. It was about Peter rec- being reclaimed. And, and it was over John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I was trying to make the point uh, that that is such a simple statement. If you love me, keep my commandments. That it doesn't take any education to understand, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I, and I went on to outline, I've got all this education, I'm a very educated man, and, and I got all this education, I don't need any of that education to understand that simple statement by the, on the part of Jesus. You know, just, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I said, I've got this, I got, and uh, in the second hour, not the first hour, but the second, according to my wife, um, in the second hour, I said, I have two masters and a doctorate. Well, folks, I don't have two masters. I have one bachelor's, one master's, and a doctorate. Now, <laughs> do you feel better? She got home and she said, that's the kind of stuff that they fire people for because they misrepresented, you know, all that business. I said, Susie, I, you know, I just the heat of the moment I say something. Okay, all right, we got that cleared up, do we? Okay, back to this Peter guy and, and, and his um, hoof and mouth disease. Because, guys, there is, um, um, there's something going on here that I want you to see. His statement is far worse than just an internal contradiction. Um, Peter is giving voice to something. He's making a mistake here, guys, that a lot of us make. And, and the mistake that is being made sends out its tentacles into, into so many little nooks and crannies of our spiritual life. Guys, this is a this is a terrible mistake that he's making here. But the problem is, some of us are making the same mistake today. Yeah. Can I show it to you? Guys, look at verse 14. It's in Acts 10, 14. 
Do you see what Peter is saying no to? Do you, do you see what it is that Peter is resisting? That he's even opposing? He's opposing more freedom. He's opposing the, the elimination of rules. He's, a, he's, he's resisting the cessation of the rules. That is, Jesus is offering to abolish ceremonial law, and Peter says, no thanks. Jesus describes for him a life of more freedom, and Peter doesn't want it. He's much more comfortable with the rules. And so are we. We, quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, prefer rules to freedom. We prefer law to grace. And we fight grace principles. Now, why is that? I want to offer three possible explanations as to why we fight grace principles. Here's number one. Fundamentally, ladies and gentlemen, all of us have legal hearts. We are skilled in a religion of performance. We we have learned, and we have learned it well, that good performance is rewarded and bad performance is punished. And we have been taught that since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. You just be a good little boy now. You go over there and you be a good little boy. So acceptance on the basis of performance was how most of us have been trained in this life. And and that thing is not easy to shake. Guys, um, it has gotten deep into our psyche. What we want is somebody to tell us the rules and then just get out of the way and I'll go do them. So we have saved Christian people who refuse, like Peter, refuse freedom in favor of rules. I don't want the rules to go away. I'll take the rules. Because the rules help us evaluate our performance and then everybody else's. Now, guys, stay with me. Can you see what the next obvious sequential step is? Because, you see, if the rules are the thing that help me evaluate my performance, they are also the things that help me evaluate yours. Because we prefer rules, we tend to be highly critical of all those who don't recognize the rightness of our rules. My brother and sister in Christ, we are judgmental. And our judgmentalism is an outgrowth of our preference for rules. Here's a second reason why we fight grace principles. 
Jesus offers more freedom, and Peter doesn't want it because he's much more comfortable with rules because rules are easier. I, I, I can't risk freedom, the, the freedom that you're offering me here, because that's way too complicated. Guys, rules are easier in this sense. Actually, in a couple of senses. But it, the rules are easier in this sense. With rules, I don't have to think. Can I give you an example? Tithing. Tithing, it's, it's easy to figure out what 10% of my income is. But I hope that you've noticed, if you've been around here very long, I hope that you've noticed that I rarely, if ever, say anything about tithing. Because I'm convinced, guys, that most of us, not all of us, but most of us, could give away 10% of our income and never miss it. So, I don't preach that. I don't talk to you about that. What I do tell you, what I do preach about is principles of sacrifice and priority. That is, giving must be a priority and it must be done sacrificially. And then I tell you, you need to go to God and pray about this. And then get creative with your giving. And that's a whole lot harder than calculating 10% of my income. So some of you are under the delusion that you are givers because you obeyed the rule. Gosh, guys, it's, um, it's also easier in this sense. That is, rules are easier in this sense. That rules are always much easier to follow than is the Holy Spirit. Tell me, guys, what's easier? Is it easier to stay away from R-rated movies or to find ways of loving my neighbor? Quite frankly, freedom scares me because um, how do I know what the rules are? Guys, here's my third reason why we fight grace principles. Rules offer me an opportunity to think of myself as superior to you because I obey the rules and you don't. We affirm ourselves on the basis of the rules and our spiritual health is measured by how well or how well we don't keep the rules. And so there again, we conclude that we're spiritual people because we kept the rules. When in fact, we could be devils. You know, guys, a couple of three or four years ago, I had a conversation, which I thought was a tragic conversation. I don't think this man ever saw the tragedy of it, but I had a conversation with a man who was visiting here at Gracie Van. And um, loved the church. Uh, he was very complimentary about the church. But he also loved college football. I mean, he loved college football. And there was one particular team in the area that was his his heartthrob. And so he went to the games that were away games. And he went to the games that were the home games. He went to all the games. And so on every Saturday where there was a game, 
we'll just say it like this, that the, the, the activities of the day were so all-consuming um, that he could never make it to church the next day. Any church. And so he came to me one day and said, you know, Jimmy, I really like Grace of Man, but I, I, I could never be a member there. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, because y'all don't have a Sunday night service. Because, you see, his goal after the football weekend was to get back to Memphis just in time so that he could go to church on Sunday night. Because whatever he may have done or may not have done on Saturday was somehow canceled out or balanced off with getting into church on Sunday night. Because, you see... That was one of the rules. Guys, we have developed a system to honor those who obey the rules. And we feel quite smug that the others don't perform the rules as well as we do. And so we measure ourselves by ourselves using the rules that we've adopted as the criteria for measurement. And often, the rules don't come from here. The rules just were made up by the group of which I'm a part. And so if we can control the rules, we can also control who gets in our smug little spiritual crowd. Guys, I watch 21st century evangelicals live in the throes of a performance mentality all day, every day. I'll show you one more thing about this story and I'll quit. Do you notice or did you notice in this story the extremes to which God must go to get Peter out of this little performing thing of his. Peter is all but forced to give up his rules gig. And, and the way that God does it, it's a, it's a couple of things. Of course, there's the two visions involved. And then somewhere in that little walk from Joppa to Caesarea, there's 32 miles in there, In that 32-mile walk, Peter connects the dots. And he says, how about that? This is not about food. This is about people. And then the coup de grace comes in verse 44. I didn't read that, but while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And that was the end of all of Peter's Performance living. Oh, my friends, this beast doesn't die die easily. Guys, do you know what it is that will that will fix all of this foolishness? The gospel, a deep, rich, thorough grasp of the provisions of Jesus Christ for His people.
demands and rules that he has. By the way, I didn't say there weren't rules. I just said that he's the only one that gets to name them. It is a rich understanding of his provisions for his people that are going to get us out of all this foolishness. You know, guys, I guess my my fundamental fear is that some of us, some of you perhaps, can still can't even think of grace as free. You can't think of the gospel or heaven as being free. I mean, I mean, you, you still got to get baptized, don't you? Why? I mean, don't, don't you have to be a member of a church? I mean, you, you, you still have to do fill in the blank. And I marvel. I marvel at the number of people who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, not so, Lord. Grace? Free? (laughs) Not, not, Not so, Lord. Working for something and deserving it is near and dear to our hearts. And for some of us, Performance is all you know. And it's going to damn you. Guys, the gospel is the reverse of how we naturally operate. The gospel says, cease all your striving and your performing And rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and Him only. It's, it's, it's that, it's God's grace that levels the ground for all people and it's Christ's performance that does that ground leveling. But I mean, my goodness, and we've, we've worked real hard for this thing and, and we don't want to see somebody get it free. Guys, if you've ever tasted mercy you don't care who else gets it in fact the more the merrier and God has gone to extremes to establish a gospel resting in nothing but Christ's performance and some of you are on the verge of saying No thanks. I prefer my performance. From this point on, Peter kind of disappears into a sea of the unclean. But he takes with him a gospel. A gospel that is is rooted not in rule keeping. But a gospel that is rooted in the rule keeper. Jesus Christ. So you see, that which started out with Peter saying no has concluded 
with some of us saying yes to this same Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's rather ironic that, that Peter is a man who taught us probably more with his weaknesses than he did with his strengths. Tradition tells us that Peter ultimately makes his way to Rome and he is there crucified in the persecutions of Nero. Tradition also suggests that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to die in the same way that Jesus had died. And so Peter enters eternity resting in nothing but the finished work of Jesus Christ who is the one who takes this whole performance thing and he turns it upside down. Cease your striving, my friend. Cease all your efforts at saving yourself. Give up your self-salvation project and trust solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our Father, forgive us that um, though we entered this kingdom through unmerited favor, we're still trying to show you how valuable we are by um, by taking pride in our performance. And I pray, Lord, that you will um, give us the, um, the rich grasp of the gospel that is so necessary to rid us of all that stuff so that we can um, live no longer um, by rules, but that we can live the same way we started, by grace. So now, Lord, if you've brought people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior and are still thinking that the way they're supposed to get in is to, is to earn their salvation, I pray that you will call us in to see that that's the very thing that will damn them. Their performance is the thing that will damn them. Lord, draw them to the only one who has performance that has merit. Christ in him crucified. We pray, of course, in his name.